Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we are starting a series today called You Ask For It. We do this about every year. I think this is the fourth year in a row we've done this, where a few weeks out, we just say, hey, do you have any questions? about faith, about the Bible, about current events, about life, about relationships, whatever. No questions off limits, and they're all anonymous, so we won't make fun of you for asking a stupid question anyway. Um, But there's no stupid questions, only stupid answers, as you may discover today. No, we'll see. So anyway, we just take a few weeks, tackle a few of those questions, and see what Scripture says about that topic or question or issue um, that was asked. And this week, we're just going to do one, and I tried to start out attacking it a certain way. I'm like... I don't like, that's different, that's different, and so we're going to do, this is sort of my plan B. Uh, the, the second sermon I wrote this week is the one that you get, so maybe it's the best one, we'll find out. But the question we're going to look at today is a really interesting one, and it's one of the oldest questions I think ever asked about God, and this week's question we're going to look at is, is God a God or the God? It's a pretty interesting question, uh, and again, it's one of the oldest ones in the history of ever, because there's been all sorts of different ideas about who God is or how many gods there are, which we'll talk about today uh, in just a minute. But again, it's a great question, and it seems very basic and foundational, but I think it, it's that way on purpose, because how you answer this question, how you view God, how you worship God or don't worship Him, sort of is a springboard for everything else you do in your life. It's, it is the basis of who you are, this, the answer to this question. Let me start out by making this statement about this question, and that is... Any belief about God requires faith. So the way that we're going to answer this question, you're going to say, oh, well, you just believe that, or that's just your faith, or that's just your belief system. Any belief, any stance on God at all requires faith. Atheism requires faith. Because you can't prove or disprove God completely, right? That's the whole point of atheism. You can't prove him. Well, you can't really disprove him either, right? So there's a faith component even to that worldview, Every major religion, no matter what kind of God or how many gods or what their names are, there's a faith component to all of those worldviews. All of those philosophies um, have a faith component. So like Islam, right? There there are similarities to Christianity in that religion, but one of them, the main one is, it's faith-based, right? They have similar views on what Christians would say, although there are a lot of views that are very different, and even the way they explain similar views are very different when you dig deep behind the surface level statements they would make, but there's a faith component to that. Every other major religion in the world, every other faith movement ever in the history of mankind has required faith. So even as we tackle this question, you're going to say, well, again, that's faith. That's what the Bible says, which, again, that's the whole point of what we're doing here is what the Bible says about these topics. So that's a given. But we're looking at this question about, again, is God a God or the God? And the, the Christian belief, our belief, my belief, hopefully your belief, is that the God of the Bible is the one true God. And that seems like a basic statement, but we're going to kind of look at three ways. So 
really to answer this question, I want to ask a different question because we're going to see really how God is different from all other gods, how the God of the Bible is unique to himself. There is no one like him. There is no one that compares to him. There is no equal to him. And I don't just mean in terms of worth or worship, although that is true. I mean in his character, in who he reveals himself to be, the God of the Bible is unique. And there are, there's multiple ways in which that's true. We're going to look at three of them this morning as we answer this question, is God a God or the God? Again, we're answering the question, he is the God, but here's what separates him. Here's, how, here's what makes our God different. Three things. The first thing that makes our God different is that there's only one of him. So the idea of monotheism, one monotheism God, so one God, that's what Christianity is, it's what Islam is, it's what Judaism is, right? One God. It's fairly rare. Even today, I named the three, almost, almost the only three religions in the world today that are monotheistic. Most of the other religions in the world, even today, are polytheistic. They believe in multiple gods, many gods, sometimes hundreds or even thousands of gods. But God has differentiated himself in this way in that there's only one of him. And so this is rare now. It was even more rare in ancient times. In the ancient Near East, when the God of the Bible first shows up, right, and chooses a people for himself, they're possibly the only monotheistic religion in the world at that time. And so when Israel, who worships their one God, when they, other people, other nations around them, they say, well, we have a sun God, and we have a moon God, and we have a river God, and we have a separate water God, we have a love God, and a God of war, and we have all these gods, who do you have? And they would say, well, we just have God. That would be confusing to almost every other human alive in the ancient Near East for really thousands of years. This would be, what do you, no, 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 wait, what, what do you mean you only have one God? Yeah, we only have one. We only need one. He kind of, you know, all the stuff that you just named, the God of this and this and this, yeah, our one God does all of that. Isn't that neat how we can just worship this one and we're just done and we don't have to worship 76 more? This is great. This is, you should join this movement. It's so much simpler. If, you, you know, people want to live a simple life, you know, uh, what is that, minimalism? If you want a minimalist religion, uh, at the time, Judaism would have, been, would have been your jam, okay? If you're trying to consolidate your life, that's the one. Uh, and even, I was reading, unrelated, I've been reading a book about the second century Christians and the movement uh, and how it sort of exploded even through persecution. One of the things that I even read this week that I wrote down because I thought, oh, this is great, is that the, the Christians in the first and second century, uh, again, they're living in Rome, which has hundreds of gods, right? All sorts of gods. You, we probably know a lot of them from mythology. You're learning about it in school. They, they worship those gods, like literally worship and sacrifice to these gods, meet in temples to praise these gods. It's not just stories that are neat. They worship them. And so when these Christians come along, they say, well, there's just one God, and he's revealed himself as Jesus, and we worship him only. Again, everybody else in Rome is like, you guys are crazy. You guys are lunatics. And what's interesting is really they didn't see them as just strange. What the polytheistic Roman world would see a first and second and third century Christian is an atheist. Because they would not say, well, that is, they would say, well, the God that you serve is not one of the gods, so he doesn't, he's not real, so you would be an atheist. That's what they were known for. And sometimes that's why they were persecuted and killed was not because they were worshiping a different god or the wrong god, but because in the view of the Roman mind in that ancient culture, they, were, they weren't worshiping anything. 
So they were seen as outside of the cultural norms. You're so different, so strange, so obscure, kind of scary. It kind of freaks us out that you're not doing what everybody else is doing, that you're going against what hundreds of years of culture has dictated that we're to do in response to the gods. And so in that way, they face persecution for that way. But from the very beginning of even ancient Judaism, ancient Israel, this is how God was seen, how he revealed himself, and how the people worshiped him. So we have this classic passage in Deuteronomy 6.4. It says this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. This is kind of their main statement of faith. This is what separates the ancient Jewish people from basically any other people group at that time and for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, after that even a couple thousand years. So what they do this because they say, again, our one God can take care of everything. There's nothing he can't do. There's no problem he can't solve. He made everything. He holds everything in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hands. I don't know how old that song is. Probably not back in Deuteronomy 6, but you get the idea. But also, when God first institutes the law, the first two laws are very interesting because they talk about the same issue of there's only one of me, And you're only to worship the one of me, and that's it. So in Exodus 20, when God gives the law, he says this. Here's the first two commandments. First, there's a statement, and then there's the commandments. God says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affections for any other God. Again, the first actual rule, law, that God makes is prefaced with this statement. Hey, I am God. I am the only God. There's only one of me. Worship me and me only. Okay? And then he gives those commands kind of in stone. There's a really interesting word. I I want to talk about a couple things, but the first thing in this passage is this word jealousy. Say, well, God's jealous? Is he that thin-skinned that he's going to get all offended and upset if I choose to worship somebody or something else? Because he says, he does tell us there are other options that you will have to worship. He says, don't worship any other God. That's a lowercase g. They don't get the uppercase g. Only he does, okay? Uh, But he says, hey, there are other options that you will have. There are other things that you can place your affection in besides me. There are other things out there that you will be tempted over and over and over again to worship besides me or also with me. And he says, that's not how this is going to work. So this idea of jealousy is not that he's thin-skinned. It's not that he's, you know, uptight or whatever. It's this idea that he is defending his own honor. That's the theological term for this idea of godly jealousy in this way. He's he's defending his own honor. And really, we'll talk about this in more detail in a minute, but this idea that God has had basically from the beginning with Israel, and I think, I believe now with the Christian church, is an idea of husband and wife. So God's always had this in view. I've chosen you as my people. You are my bride. So, and we see this imagery in the New Testament with Jesus fleshed out as well. It's the same idea, Old and New Testament alike. It's always this idea. Hey, there's one of me, and I've chosen you as a people. There's one of you, and that's it. We're, We're locked for life. So that's the imagery here with this word when he says, I'm jealous. It's this idea of defending his honor, uh, of saying, hey, it's just you and me. Like, there's no third party here. We're, this is not an open marriage, okay? We're not, we're not trying other things out. It, this is it. This is the only option in this t- context of relationship, which, as we'll see, is unique to God as well. 
But then he also talks about no idols and no images. Now, this makes it difficult, especially in an ancient culture, to worship this God. Because every other God and every other religion, every other movement has idols that represent those gods. They have a figure that represents an attribute of that God or an Im- a mental image. I would say, if we're honest, it's going to be easier to have this image to look at and pray to and bow to and worship, even if you are worshiping not just the thing, but the God of the thing. God's like, we're not going to do that. And here, here's really two reasons why. First, uh, he's saying that any idol of him is not a true representation of him. Because you can't make an image that, ex- that exhibits everything at one time, and that's what God is, everything at one time. So even when, uh, you know, when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, they built this golden calf, they think they're worshiping the one true God. It's not like they've gone to idolatry and we're worshiping a different God now. Now later, the, the false god Baal, he's represented usually by a bull or a cow or something like that. Strength, uh, that's sort of the image there. But God's like, no, I can't even spit the rules out before you're already breaking the second one, you know. Now, they think they're worshiping God. They think they're doing themselves a favor. Oh, we can come to this calf that we've made to honor God, to represent. And he's like, no, that represents one part of me. What about the other parts of me? You can't represent them in an idol. That's why he says, no. He says, I can't be encapsulated in an image or in a stone figure or a metal figure. So don't try. Don't do it. You're going to limit who I am to you by making this idol. And then obviously, secondly, he's saying, don't make idols of anything else. So like, don't, like, don't start worshiping those gods with those idols, even though it might be easier mentally, men- emotionally, you can bow down to this thing. Don't do it. Again, there's that jealousy factor here. It's just you and me, and we're entering in this relationship. These are the parameters of that relationship. But this whole idea of God being one and being everything within himself is extremely unique in religion. Even today, it's fairly unique. If Christianity weren't so large, it would seem way more strange because there's like a billion or so Christians of all sorts all over the world, and it's been around for a couple thousand years, and then Judaism before that for a couple thousand years. It seems normal. Well, yeah, there's one God. To most of the rest of the world, even today, that is a strange statement to make. So that's what differentiates the God of the Bible, the God that we serve, what makes him different is that he's one. And that's a good thing because he's all-sufficient. He's all-knowing. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need this God's help over here. Hey, there's a drought, rain God. Could you help me out? No, God doesn't need help or assistance. He doesn't need a tag team. It's all him, only him. That's a good thing. But that's what makes God different and unique. The, The second aspect of what makes our God different from any other God is this idea of sacrifice. Now, I don't mean sacrifice in terms of God requires sacrifice. He does but so does every other God. Like every God requires a sacrifice. You have to do this or pray this or bring this or burn this or kill this to worship any God in any culture. They always require a sacrifice. That's not what makes God unique. It's actually the opposite. What makes the God of the Bible unique in terms of any God and any religion is that he himself sacrifices. When you look at what God does, all, even in the Old Testament, God seems really cruel and mean um, but when you, when you read the actual specific instances here, you see God's mercy on, on display all the time. You see, he talks about love a lot. Those are the two things that, that really point to this idea of sacrifice, two attributes of God. The first one is love. The second one is grace. 
two main attributes that express and explain the God of the Bible that are unique to only him. So love, right? Most other gods and most other cultures are selfish. They are cruel. They are mean. Like there's, there are ancient stories of other gods who literally play tricks on the humans, like to see how much they can do and how much fun it is to toy with the little people on the earth. Like the stories and the legends of those gods, they are mean. They are cruel. They are not loving at all. Now, there are gods of love in other religions, right? We know that. But they are not of, in and of themselves loving toward anyone or anything. They, they are all about themselves. They are greedy. They are cruel. They are nasty sort of people. But we read in 1 John 4, 7, John says that God is love. Now, again, it's not the only attribute of God, but it is central to who he is. It is part of the core of who God is. He is love. So, therefore, he is loving. Therefore, he loves, which is unlike any other God. I I would challenge you to find another God in a culture that is loving in the way that God, the God of the Bible, expresses himself to be. You're going to have a hard time finding that even if you can, okay? The second part of this sacrificial God that we serve is that he's full of grace, Again, most other gods and most other cultures from the beginning of time are vengeful. You cross me, I destroy you. Like, you mess up one time, you're out. And we see story, and you think, well, that's the Old Testament, right? That's what God does. Nope. Time after time after time, he reaches a limit. Right? Even when destruction happens, even when anger is poured out, even in Old, Old Testament, you know, angry God, there's still so much grace that God gives and shows, so many warnings. How many prophets are in the Old Testament? That's what a majority of the writings are of the Old Testament, as prophets giving warnings, saying, God does not want to do this, but you know, it's like, I'll turn this car around if I have to, right? We as parents know what that's like. And you reach a certain point where you're like, I'm putting the hammer down, kids. This is not working anymore. God does that same sort of thing at times. However, he does show grace. He's full of forgiveness. Even Peter says that God would that none perish, but that all come to repentance. That's the grace of God, which is unlike any other God in any other religion. And we see the full embodiment of this love and this grace and this sacrifice in the person and work of Jesus. So John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus shows, or, well, Jesus does too, but God the Father shows ultimate sacrifice in sacrificing His only Son for His creation who have sinned against Him. His creation who have made this sacrifice necessary, he lovingly, willingly sacrifices for them. No other God does that. No other God even comes close to that. Like any other religion, there's no more followers left. Like God's put up with all this nonsense from us for a long time, and we're still here, and we're still messing up, and we're still imperfect, and God's sacrifice is still there, still available. His love and his mercy, right, his love and his grace are available, which is unlike any other God in existence, even if you could say it in that way, because they don't really exist, but that's the idea, all right? And the third idea that makes our God different our God unique from all of the gods is this word experience, experience. So the idea here is that God doesn't just want our worship, but he wants a relationship. Okay, that's, that's unique to the God of the Bible. The idea here is that God doesn't just want to rule over us, 
but he wants to be close to us. That is unlike any other God in, that's ever been thought of or imagined or named or worshipped ever. No other God does that. We read this in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. It says, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. This does not describe even remotely any other God from any other movement in the history of the world. No other God behaves this way. No other God does any of those things. They are selfish. They are cruel. They are manipulative. Uh, they are many times evil in nature. And the people that worship them know this. That's why they live in fear. That's why they live in fear for their lives constantly of what this God will do if I cross him. If I don't say enough of this, then the God of rain will not bring rain to the earth. That's how it's always been. But instead, he says he calms all our fears. The God of the Bible is basically the opposite of what every other God tries to be. He knows he doesn't have to intimidate because he's looking for a relationship. He wants his people to experience him. Not live in fear of him. Not live in dread of him. Oh, is he? Did, did God wake up in a good mood today? I really hope so. Well, God must be really mad because look at all the stuff that's going on in the world. Man, God is just really angry. Or maybe God took a vacation in 2020, right? That's what other religions would think. They would think this way. They do think this way. God is angry or else he would not do this or he would do this. Whatever the situation is, but it, the God of the Bible is the opposite of that. He's, he wants us to experience him. We see this in the Old Testament, really, and in the New Testament, both. Uh, some descriptions of God from the Old Testament, he's a powerful deliverer. It's not just like the Red Sea from the Israel and Egypt, like over and over again, God saves his people from calamity, from tragedy, from danger, over and over. He's a benevolent king. See, the idea from the beginning was one of the things that, in, that God included in himself was, I'm going to lead you. You don't need a king I'm your king, and I'm going to lead you lovingly. I'm going to lead you with all the wisdom that I have, which is all the wisdom that there is. That was the idea. And, when, and he, even when they, Israel said, hey, let's get an earthly king, God's like, don't do this. This is a bad idea. And it took like literally 10 seconds for them to figure that out, and then it was too late. Once the king was set up, all downhill from there. But so that was the idea. God was a benevolent king. And as we already talked about, he, he saw himself as a loving husband to his people, his bride. He provided for them. He loves them. He cares for them. These are all relational terms that God sees himself as with us, with ancient Israel as well. Uh, no other God does that. No other God describes themselves in that way. And then in the New Testament, it gets even more intimate here. Because when, when Scripture describes the Holy Spirit of God, it describes him as our helper, our comforter, our guide. So it's not like, you know, that I'm going to zap you. No, that's not how God's described. Helper, comforter, the Greek word there is paraclete, someone who comes alongside to assist you in life. That's what the Holy Spirit of God is. That's how he's described. It's in relational terms. And there are two other terms that Jesus uses to describe God that are absolutely revolutionary and just blow everyone's mind. The first one is Father. So the disciples say, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And I'm assuming when he starts praying, they're thinking he's going to say, oh, benevolent Father, or not Father, like, oh, amazing Lord, or oh, Creator. But Jesus says, our Father. That's how he starts this prayer. 
And I can just imagine everyone listening there, they're like ready in the posture, focused in, we're going to learn how to pray. He says, our Father, and they're like, wait, what? You just, what was that word? Creator? No, Father. Oh, powerful one? No, Father. It just doesn't make any sense. Gods are not described in this way, in this paternal type of language. But that's the first way that Jesus describes God is Father. Now, it helps that he, that God was his Father, right? And he shows us that we are also his children, but it took some time to get through to our thick skulls, to the disciples' thick skulls, that God is Father. He's never been seen in that way. He's never been described in those terms. No God has ever been seen in that way or described in those terms. It's just not the way that gods are, but our God is different. Then Jesus takes it even one step further in Revelation. Here's what he says. Here's how Jesus describes really himself being God. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. That last word there is revolutionary. God wants to be my friend. First of all, there's three things here that we need to look at. First, what we see is God pursues us. Not chasing us down to zap us with lightning bolts. He pursues this relationship, this experience. He says, I stand at the door and knock. I'm trying to get in. I want to be with you. I've chased you down to spend time with you. I've chased you down from the ends of the earth to have a relationship with you. No other God does this. And then he desires to have that relationship. He says, if you open the door, I will come in. So he, he initiates, he chases us down for this relationship. And then he says, I will come in and eat a meal with you as your friend. This idea of this eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, creative being, being our friend, again, is unlike any other thought in any other religion, that this God would really condescend himself to that level to be friends with his own creation. That's crazy, then God's crazy. Check that box off. That's something else that he is. You can't put in an idol, okay? So God says, yeah, the idea here is experience. The idea here is intimacy. The idea here is relationship, that I'm longing to be with you, not lording over you from a distance, not playing games with your emotions and your mind, your situation like you're on a chessboard. That's not what he's doing. He desires intimate relationship. He desires through his Holy Spirit to lead and guide and comfort When we hurt, he's there. When we're happy, he's there. When we have everything, he's there. When we have nothing, he's there. He wants to be part of our lives, which is unique. It's not like any other being, any other God, in any other religion or worldview at all. This experiential nature of God, this relational nature that God desires to have. And I would say, based on that one alone, I think all three of them are key, but that really the sacrificial part and the experiential part, that makes him worthy of worshiping. I mean, when you look at the, you put the pros and cons list here, there's a lot of pros to worshiping this God. And those pros aren't in any other worldview, any other religion, any other God, named, unnamed, idol, no idol, past, present, future. God is unique in that way. So God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is ever-present. But at the same time, he is ever-loving, he's ever-kind, He's ever giving. That combination is what makes God who he is. It's what makes him the only one true God. It's what makes him worthy of worship. Not that he demands it, although in some ways he does, but in in the way that he invites us to do that. He invites us into this relationship. It makes us like, 
I will sign up to worship that God. I, I'm, I can deal with that. Like, I can do that. that that's pretty easy for me to, to, for me to handle. I don't understand everything, and I don't, you know, get what he's doing or not doing all the time. But if you're describing this God, sign me up. And that's, that's the call. That's, that's the plea. That's, that's sort of the sales pitch of who God is, is that he's all-powerful. He is one in and of himself, and he wants to be worshipped him only. But there's good reason. He sacrifices himself for us. He desires relationship with us. That's what makes him uh, so different and so amazing and so worthy of worship. And so as we enter this relationship with him, and as we experience all that he is in this relationship, we can't help but be changed by it. We can't help but be different, feel different, look at everything differently because of what God has done. He changes us through that relationship with him, never to be the same again.